too hard. It's just a love mirror. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Times in the Good Times show, and it is no accident that we have Ed G. Edward Griffin. He's the author of a book that I think all Americans should read. It's called The Creature from Jekyll Island. Ed's with me today. Ed, welcome. Uh, thank you, Jay. Good to be here. Uh, I believe The Creature from Jekyll Island does, in fact, uh, address the very most important issue that we're trying to address in this radio show, and that is what is the cause of our current economic malaise? Why did we get ourselves into so much trouble? Uh, and Ed, that quite frankly is the reason that I, I'm delighted to have you on as as our first guest in this show. Um, for those who are not familiar with Ed's work, I want to just start out right away by suggesting that they go to his website, which is uh, realityzone.com. Is that right, Ed? That's right. Um, we have so much ground to cover, Ed, and we have so little time to do it here in uh, less than a half an hour. I think that we can give maybe our listeners an introduction to what the creature from Jekyll Island is all about, but I, I'm not sure that we're going to be able to get into the kind of depth I would like to get into, but maybe sometime in the future uh, we can do that, I hope, or at least if I can just get people to read this book. You know, I tell people at all the speaking engagements that I'm, that I'm involved with, I always tell people they should really read this book because it really outlines, as I said, the heart of the problem, I think, that we have in our financial markets right now. Ed, uh, let me just start out by mentioning that the uh, the first chapter of your book is entitled The Journey to Jekyll Island. Uh, the book starts out by talking about this clandestine gathering of a group of men who boarded a luxury train, I believe in Hoboken, New Jersey, to go to this place called Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia. And they were pretending to go uh, duck hunting, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Could you tell our listeners who these men were and why were they pretending to go duck hunting? And what was the real purpose of their meeting? Yeah, you're quite right. It's hard to cover so much ground in so little time. Um, the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, ostensibly is about the Federal Reserve System, but uh, it's much bigger than that. It's it's about uh, the nature of money. It's about economic laws. It's about uh, the abuse of uh, the power to create a nation's money and, and how that abuse leads to corruption in government and so many things that are now descending around our heads and uh, but it ostensibly is about the federal reserve system which is the mechanism uh by which the united states creates money on behalf of the uh, government and uh, the meeting to which you were referring back in 1910 at jekyll island was the uh, seminal meeting where a small group of uh, the wealthiest people in the world are representing their firms seven of them went to Jekyll Island because it was uh, out of the beaten path, it was very private, and in fact they even denied for quite some time that they went to such a meeting. It was a secret meeting, and it was at that meeting that they hammered together all the important details of what was to become the Federal Reserve System three years later when it was passed into law in 1913. Now, the the reason they did this in secret and, uh, and uh, denied that they were participating is a very simple reason. The Federal Reserve was offered to the American people as an agency of the federal government. Supposedly they thought it was an agency of the federal government, and it wasn't. But it was offered to them as uh, an agency which was supposed to uh, put the reins on the very powerful banking uh, dynasties in Wall Street. Uh, the people of America were very concerned by this uh, huge power, economic power that had coalesced into the hands of a, sm of a few uh, uh, Wall Street uh, investment firms. They knew that the, the credit of the entire nation was wrapped up in a few banks and insurance companies. They were concerned about that, and they thought that the Federal Reserve System was going to put controls on those very wealthy, powerful institutions, and um, you know, and make sure that they serve the purposes of the nation rather than the private purposes of the uh, of the corporations. And so the reason for the secrecy is that the very corporations and institutions which supposedly were to be controlled by this legislation were the ones that were drafting the legislation. 
they decided that, well, okay, the, the people want uh, uh, some laws now to control our industry, so we're not going to wait for enemies of our industry to write those laws. We will do it ourselves, and we'll hide that fact. We'll let the people think that it was done by their noble politicians when, in fact, we are the ones that are drafting it, and that's the reason for the secrecy. It's a very simple and an obvious uh, logical arrangement when you think about it. And the people that went there, the seven of them were Nelson Aldridge, who was uh, the Republican whip in the Senate, uh, one of the wealthiest men in the country, uh, Abraham Piat Andrew, who was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury at that time, but he, was, he came from a banking family, and that's the reason he was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, because basically he had banking connections. Frank Vanderlip was there. He was president of the National City Bank of New York. Henry P. Davison was a senior partner of the J.P. Morgan Company. Charles D. Norton was president of J.P. Morgan's First National Bank of New York. Benjamin Strong was there. He was head of J.P. Morgan's Bankers Trust Company. And finally, Paul Warburg was there, who was a full partner in Kuhn Loban Company, which was a representative of the Rothschild banking dynasty in England and France. And, of course, his brother, Max Warburg, was the head of the Warburg Banking Consortium in Germany and the Netherlands. Those are the guys that drafted the Federal Reserve Act. And when you look at the wealth which they held individually and which their banks and institutions held, according to estimates at the time, which we pulled out of the New York Times, was that they represented about one-fourth of the wealth of the entire world. Now, that was, in other words, the very banking cartel, the industry, uh, the uh, money trust, as they called it in the newspapers those days. Mm -hmm. That was the very money trust that supposedly the uh, Federal Reserve System was supposed to control, mm -hmm. and they drafted the legislation. Well, now we jump ahead to today. What's the fruit of that? The reason these guys created the Federal Reserve System is so that they could use the uh, governmental power that, that backed it to make sure that they would uh, enjoy a nice, handsome profit no matter whether their businesses failed or succeeded. They knew that if their, their businesses were probably going to fail because they were, uh, they were uh, undergoing very unsound banking practices, they were lending money they didn't have, uh, they didn't really concern themselves too much with the ability of the person to pay or the institution or country to pay back the loans because they knew that in, in the event of a crisis, they could always go to the taxpayer and get the taxpayers to put up the money to cover the losses. That was all started back in 1910. And, you know, for years, people tried to tell the American people that this is what's going on and you better look out because, uh, you know, you're going to wind up picking up this huge bill. And nobody was interested. They said, ah, I don't believe that. Um, and that, anyway, we're living well, aren't we? Look at the prosperity. Well, now, here we are now in 2009, and it's finally coming down the way some of us have been predicting all these years. And now people are saying, well, what happened? Well, how did this happen? How did we let this happen? Well, they let it happen is because they didn't care. Yeah. It didn't take an interest. Now it's uh, it's very, very, very late. But, Ed, the reasons given to us, uh, you know, constantly by the media has always been, you know, it's for our own good. They're going to, uh, they're, they're going to, uh, manage the economy. They're gonna, they're going to be able to avoid, uh, significant downturns in, in the economy by, uh, by having more liquidity, by having this, the Federal Reserve being able to, uh, to create lots of money. Um, but, you know that obviously isn't uh, isn't working out too well, is it? Well, no. That's always been the argument from the very beginning, back in 1913 when they passed the the bill. It was all to help America. It was all to help you folks, the the average person. We are doing this. The bankers are saying we bankers are doing this, and we politicians are doing this for you folks. Not all. We don't benefit, do we? Of course not. Uh, it's it's a bunch of nonsense. It's uh, it's propaganda, and it's just amazing to me that uh, the average uh, voter is uh, is so uh, politically illiterate mm -hmm. that they fall for that stuff over and over and over again. They actually believe that the government is there to help them. You know, That's well, they, they Ed, actually believe that. Well, Ed, you could say that in a way then that the uh, that the stated reasons for the Federal Reserve's creation has been a failure, perhaps, but but. Have, has the Fed, looking at it from their own through their own eyes, if you could do so, have, has the Fed's real reasons for being created been a failure? Do you think? Oh, it's been a, 
a rip-roaring success. Uh-huh. The Federal Reserve has succeeded on every one of the principles which they set out to to uh, to do back on Jekyll Island when they discussed the purpose of the Fed. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, it was to control the competition. They were they were concerned over the arrival of new banks springing mm-hmm. up in the South and on the West Coast of the expanding nation in those days and they wanted to keep control in new york with the existing biggest banks they they wanted to be able to pass on their losses to the taxpayer they wanted to be able to create money out of nothing so as to manipulate interest rates which would drive people to the banks to borrow money at at uh, low interest rates rather than for people to save money and do whatever they wanted to do, expand business or take vacations or whatever they wanted to do with money. Instead of saving the money, they wanted to bring the people into the banks to borrow money because the banks make money only when others come in and borrow. Mm -hmm. Uh, The banks really don't want you to pay back your loans. They want you to just keep those loans open forever like a credit card statement and just send in your interest every month. Well, Ed, as I understand, you know, as the United States was a young country in the early 1900s, it was growing very rapidly, the late 1800s, it was growing very rapidly, and there were a lot of very successful companies that were not really needing banks. They were actually growing from internally generated funds. That is, they took their profits and reinvested them so that the institutions, the, the industrial companies themselves, were actually, in a sense, banking interest, and they were crowding out the, the big New York, the money center banks. It was that then part of their reason was to avoid that competition. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying, yes. They they did not want uh, private capital formation. That was almost a, a dirty phrase. They spoke, how can, we, how can we circumvent private capital formation as though it was an evil thing? They wanted people coming to the banks to borrow money rather than save it. Well, we've heard this phrase recently in the mainstream media, um, privatizing profits socializing uh, losses, and I guess that's that's what they've been doing. But, Ed, when we're talking about now, we're talking about not billions of dollars. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars and even trillions of dollars of socialized losses that the common folks are being asked to shoulder. Is that is that what's going on here? And did yeah, it, I, it, that it all have its origin back and, in 1910 then? That's right. It's It's been going on for a long time, but it's certainly accelerating right now to the point where I, I think the cup is going to be full. I mean, there's, there comes a point when you do have total socialized uh, government, socialized industry, socialized uh, everything, banking, health care, and so forth. Uh, you start off with 10% and then 15, 20, 30, 80, and so forth. At some point, you get to 100%. Mm. And uh, we're, I think we're very close to that. And, and these guys in Washington are, are laying out the, the roadmap to get us to that point in a very short period of time now. And when we get to 100%, I think people need to realize that not only are uh, is the economy totally regimented by government, but people themselves are totally regimented by government. It's and Ed, I think that it's true that uh, socialism doesn't really create wealth. It, it is a consumer of wealth. The capitalism really creates wealth. Uh, we're going to have to take a break here in a little bit, but one of the things I want to ask you about is gold. And what what role did gold play? Gold has been the enemy of of, uh, of sort of the fractional reserve banking system that the uh, that the Federal Reserve has espoused. So. You know, when we come back, um, uh, maybe you could address that issue a little bit or, or maybe get started on it right now for the next few seconds. Well, yeah, uh, just to get started on it, uh, gold has always been the enemy of uh, politicians and uh, bankers who want the ability to expand, you know, create money supply out of nothing so mm-hmm. they can can collect interest on huge amounts of nothing, literally. Mm-hmm. Gold has always been a discipline which they hate. And so there's a great propaganda war to convince the American people that gold is not a good thing. You should not have a monetary system backed by gold. And they're not quite sure why, but they've heard it so many times that uh-huh. uh, they just repeat it. So I guess it would not be a gigantic uh, surprise to you then that uh, when the Gold Antitrust Action Committee, headed by Bill Murphy and uh, a couple of those uh, folks, the hard money camp, uh, really started to talk about this issue. Um, was that a surprise to you when you heard them talk about conspiracy on the part of the government and banks to to control the price of gold or at least to keep it from rising so rapidly? No, it wasn't a surprise to me. I was just mad that it took them so long to get there <laughs> because that thing has been going on. The manipulation of the uh, gold supply and the price of gold has been going on for a long, long uh-huh. time. But I'm sure glad that uh, that committee came into being because they had the expertise 
uh, and the knowledge of being able to figure it out and explain it. Okay, we're going to have to take a break here. Uh, we'll be right back with Ed Griffin in just a few minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Crocodile Gold Corp. is the new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its Gold Fields Project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green-tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to jtaylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. This is Jay Taylor, your host uh, for... Uh, turning hard times into good times. I'm with Ed Griffin. And Ed, before the break, we were talking a little bit about gold. We just introduced the topic. Gold is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. It's been very kind to me. We've uh, invested in gold and gold mining shares over the last number of years, and it's uh, it's done very well. While the equity markets have fallen out of bed, gold mining has been a very gold mining and gold itself have have been very very good for our portfolios. But I would like to get back to just asking you why it is that gold is such a problem for uh, for the Federal Reserve and for those uh, for for the establishment, frankly, right now. Yes, well, there's a group of economists out there that uh, worship at the feet of uh, John Maynard Keynes, who is a well-known collectivist uh, writer and, and economic theorist uh, some decades ago. Uh, and Keynes called gold the barbaric metal, and. Um, Karl Marx picked up on that theme, too. He, he thought that gold was a barbaric metal. And all of the collectivists uh, agree with that because they see that the ability to expand the money supply at, at will, the ability to just create whatever amounts of money may be required for whatever your scheme is, gives tremendous power to those who hold the ability to create the money. That's pretty obvious. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. Uh, but when a money supply is based on something which limits its growth, and certainly gold would be in that category, then these guys don't have the power to just manufacture money out of nothing. Like right now, Congress 
and the Federal Reserve would not be able to create these hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars. They just would not be able to do it. Well, let me understand that. They don't have the ability with a gold standard to redistribute wealth from the people that create it, the miners, the manufacturers, the inventors, the farmers, those people that actually create wealth to themselves. Is that what you're saying? Well, yes, that's right. Uh, when, when money is backed by gold or silver or anything else of tangible value, uh, then it's supply. The supply of money always keeps pace with the growth of the goods and services within society. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a good reason for that. We probably don't have time to go into all the mechanics of it, but it has always always been that way. Um, and so that the, the value of the one ounce of gold or silver uh, always has remained constantly, has been re remained constant throughout those periods mm -hmm. of history where money was backed by gold or silver. Uh, just to give you a, a brief uh, example, if we had lived in ancient Rome uh, in times of Caesar and we had a one-ounce gold coin, we would have been able to spend it and buy a very nice uh, toga, a handcrafted belt, and a pair of sandals. That would have cost approximately one ounce of gold. Today, thousands of years later, if we have one ounce of gold, we can uh, exchange it for Federal Reserve notes, run down to the to the clothing store before the value depreciates. Yeah. And we can buy a nice suit, a handcrafted belt, and a pair of shoes. So the value, the true purchasing value of one ounce of gold really hasn't changed in thousands of years mm -hmm. because the amount of energy to produce that suit, that belt, and that pair of shoes is approximately the same amount of energy required to dig out one ounce of gold from the ground and, and purify it and put it into a coin. I can tell you, Ed, it's a very difficult task. I've been down in mines a mile under the earth, and huh? the amount of, of engineering and capital and so forth and expertise that's required to yeah. get gold from the ground is a heck of a lot harder, I think, than it is for these central bankers to create money out of thin air. Well, of course, yeah. And so the, the, the politicians and the bankers who want that power to be able to create money out of nothing to accomplish their political objectives or to collect interest on the money which they go through the motions of loaning out. That's a tremendously heady uh, power that they have. They hate the idea of having a monetary system limited by the quantity of gold or silver which people can dig out of the earth. So that's the war and unfortunately the uh, uh, the average American is not aware of that. Mm -hmm. he, he just thinks that, oh, isn't it nice that these the nice people, these uh, elected representatives in Washington, are, are giving all this money away, oh, and then they're going to help us? Mm -hmm. And they don't realize that they're giving money away that they're taking from the people in the first place, and they don't understand how they're taking it. Well, they're taking it, first of all, through taxes, but that's the smaller part of the picture now with these huge amounts that they're creating there's no way they're going to tax the American people enough to pay for all of that. So, but they're going to get it anyway, and they're going to get it through higher prices, through inflation. It won't be too much further down the line, and the average guy will be saying, how come I'm paying $35 for a loaf of bread? Right. And they're going to wonder what hit them. Ed, you know, it, it has to be that way, you, you think, because there's trillions of dollars that the Obama administration is now promising to pump into the economy to bail people out or, to, or for one sort of works program or another. And the Chinese don't have that kind of money. Where, where is the global savings going to come from to finance that? I guess that's the issue, isn't it? Yes, there would be no global savings. They're going to get this from the sweat of the average worker. That's where it's all coming from and always has come from when these collectivists get hold of the political machinery and start spending more than they have then it starts to ricochet down and eventually it hits to the average guy, the worker who's out there working for a living and, and, and he pays it either through taxes, direct taxes or indirect taxes called inflation. That's the only place it ever comes from. Ed, uh, I'd like to spend just a couple of minutes, we've got about four minutes left, I'd like to spend a couple of minutes to talk about housing. I know that you talk in your book about housing debacles in the past, about how the government has intervened in the housing market, and now we've had the biggest housing bubble that we've ever had, uh, and it's pulling down the whole economy, obviously, as, as you know, millions of homes cannot be financed. People don't have the wherewithal to, to fan, finance them. Would you care to just comment a little bit on the current housing situation, and does this thing have a lot further to go before we see the bottom of it? 
Well, that second question is, is one that I wouldn't touch uh, with a 20-foot pole because uh, I don't know how much further it has to go. Uh-huh. But I can say in general that the housing market was greatly uh, inflated or bubbled, as they say. And what that means is that uh, the number of dollars that were being spent for a piece of real estate were way out of proportion of its uh, underlying value when measured against other things. Mm-hmm. And the reason that came about is because of manipulation of the credit markets, the ability of the Federal Reserve and some of the other agencies which were politically supported to redistribute uh, credit unnaturally into certain favored areas. And the home market was one of the favored areas. They made mortgage rates ridiculously low. And that lured people uh, is like luring a fish to grab a, a worm not realizing that there was a hook underneath the worm. (laughs) It lured people to snap at those great interest rates, and they said, I can afford that monthly payment, and they moved upgraded in their housing, and first thing you know, they're living in semi-palaces, and they think, this is wonderful, not realizing that they had already been hooked for the contraction, which was destined to come, because everything eventually seeks its own level. And uh, so what we're seeing now is a a return to realistic values. Um, And all the bubble is being squeezed out of it, or all the water is being squeezed out of the sponge, or however, whatever Mm -hmm. analogy you want to use. What the point will be when it finally is at the realistic level, I don't know. But I suspect it has a little more to go before it really is uh, realistically compared to other things that people can buy with that same dollar. There's going to be a, quite a bit of pain, then, you suspect, for the, for the economy, for, for most people in general. Well, I think so. I, I believe so. Uh, and I almost hope so, not because I want the pain, but because if we don't have the pain, there will be no change. Uh, if we don't have the pain, the, the present policies will continue. And I know what lies at the end of that road. The end of that road will be a completely totalitarian system mm-hmm. where you and I will not only have anything... Uh, any money to buy things with, but we'll also have no freedom to do anything with anything we bought in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's and where it's headed, and that worries me even more than the economic crisis. That's the worst thing, as Ron Paul has has said. If we have our freedom, we can recover. But if we lose our freedom, it's very, very difficult to recover economically. Exactly. Ed, have you got some ideas about what people should be doing, either for themselves or to try to help uh, steer the country back in the right direction? Well, The reason I formed Freedom Force International is because I wanted to deal with that very question. I don't think anything is going to change, uh, Jay, until we change the uh, thinking Mm -hmm. of the people who go to Washington, Mm D.C. Right now, most of those guys are on the gravy train, and they're thinking about collectivism. They're thinking about power. They're thinking about, you know, feathering their own nests. We need some real Americans in there that think about the nation first who understand the basics of economics and uh, money and uh, who have an ideology that is not uh, uh, the same as communism or socialism or Nazism. I mean, what we have been following in our own government of late is so close to those ideologies that we have dreaded and fought against in the Mm -hmm. past, and we're adopting the very principles here at home. We need people in Washington that are going to take a return to the principles of liberty and freedom and individual worth that we used to have in this country. If we can do that, then we can dig out of any kind of a mess that comes along. But if we continue down the path that we're going, then I don't think we're going to dig out. And that's the reason we created Freedom Force International, is for people who want to help in that reversal process to come on board and uh, work together with us. Excellent, Ed. We're, we're running out of time here, so I would like to tell people that they should go to realityzone.com. Is that where they can learn more about well, realityzone.com is the commercial site where you can mm-hmm. uh, buy all of these books and videos mm-hmm. and things. But the place for Freedom Force is called freedomforceinternational.org. Excellent, Ed. I'm, I'm so glad you could be with us for our very first show. Folks, please don't go away. I'm, I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'll be back after the station break with some ideas about how you can protect your wealth in these turbulent times. Stay tuned. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Soledin Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this, expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year, highlighting a very positive and economical project and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.soledin.com to learn more. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its Gold Fields Project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have an old friend of mine, well, really two, uh, longtime friends. Let's say longtime friends. It sounds better than old friends. Longtime friends, Dr. Robert McHugh, and, of course, my partner, Roger Wiegand, with us. Uh, thanks, uh, both of you, to, for joining us. Thanks, Jay. Good to be here, Jay. Good to have both of you. Uh, both of you guys are, are technical analysts. Uh, uh, Roger is on with me more frequently than, than uh, Dr. McHugh. Uh, but uh, Robert McHugh, I'd like to ask you, uh, you were talking now, going back last year uh, or so, looking at the next shoe to drop. We talked about the Elliott Wave major uh, patterns of um, you know, the A wave, the, uh, I should say the A wave down, I guess. We have the B wave up now. Uh, from March of 2009, after the sort of cataclysmic initial decline following the Lehman Brothers decline, uh, the Lehman Brothers failure, uh, and we bottomed out. We have a cyclical bull market, I guess you'd say, that's been of some duration here. Uh, has this surprised you? Uh, it, it has, in the sense that I didn't anticipate QE2 coming out uh, back in the summer. Uh, when we were uh, when we were looking at uh, the charts, but um, QE2 has artificially pumped the market, extended it. That's often what we see going into the major tops. Um, I think one of the things that's really got me worried is um, the further this market extends to the upside, it's like pressing a rubber band. The snapback's going to be a lot worse. QE2 is basically taking cash, printed out of thin air, going into the hands of Wall Street, 
uh, for their uh, bonds, and then they're taking the cash, and they got to do something with it. And theoretically, they, the baloney we're being told is that it would be uh, filtered down to the households and the local economies, which is not happening. Wall Street's taking it, and it's, they're pumping the markets. But there's only so much of this, and the extension can only go so far. And, and it's, it's artificial, it's phony. None of the economic numbers really support this. And uh, there's a snapback coming. It's going to be very bad. It's going to be a double-dip recession, possibly depression. Yeah, they, they were able to extend this thing three, four, five months. But uh, we're, we're, everything I'm looking at, this thing could turn on a dime. Maybe they extend it another month or two if they want. But uh, it's artificial, and there's going to be uh, a price to pay. Roger, you got a question for uh, for Dr. McHugh? Yeah, I was wondering. I want to ask Bob about what he what he thinks the second half of the year will be versus the first half. A lot of the tech work I'm doing right now and some fundamentals indicate that with all these IPOs coming out with the big uh, private equity funds, I think they're going to pump stocks the first half of the year. I think the second half of the year they're going to bail out. And if with the QE2 thing going on. Uh, along with this bailout of these big uh, companies, I think next fall is when we get it. Roger, you may end up being right about that because um, there's clearly a concerted effort by the by the Wall Street firms and the Fed in, in you know in coercion with each other to uh, uh, to uh, to pump this thing. Um, but there's going to be a price to pay. It's going to it's and, and by definitely by the second half of 2011, we're going to be in the throes of it. Um, but you know this is. It's just everything is overbought. Uh, everything is extended. Uh, everything I'm looking at, uh, we're just waiting for momentum to turn down. Uh, it's just, it's just, it's a setup. It's a heck of a setup. It's like we saw in 2007. It's like we saw in 2000. It's there. Uh, Robert, on the uh, on uh, on 14th of January, I guess last weekend, um, recently anyway, uh, you talked about you talked about the municipal bond market and. I was amazed when I was reading your missive here about, uh, you said there were 108 new 52-week lows on that particular day, trading day, the 14th of January, uh, on the NYSE. Uh, that was on Thursday with over 80% of them municipal bond funds. I mean, we haven't heard anything about it, but this municipal bond, I mean, um, we, we had uh, Meredith Whitney, of course, come out on 60 Minutes. And if you go back and watch that, I would really encourage listeners that may not have seen Meredith Whitney to go on uh, on their computers and Google her "60 Minutes Meredith Whitney" and watch that watch that tape because I think she lays out uh, in and, and I think they did a great job of laying out the horrendous uh, financial condition that our local governments are in, uh, and uh, and you know she. She took a lot of heat for that. Now, all of a sudden, out of the woodwork comes all these guys that are supposed to know everything about the municipal bond markets. It was really a concerted effort to try to make people believe that Meredith Whitney was full of hot air. And yet, here we have this, you know, the market just cra really crapping out with 108 new 52-week uh, lows with over 80% of them municipal bond funds. Well, what do you think? I mean, what's going on? Is the market wrong here, and Meredith Whitney is wrong? What's going on? Well, my take is that uh, municipals are in a lot of trouble. And here's the thing. 152 new lows um, is a very high number to get when we have uh, a rising market like this. Mm. Uh, and the problem is that almost all financial institutions – have a bond portfolio that's up to 15 to 30 percent of their entire asset balance sheet, and uh, a good portion of those are in municipal bonds. And uh, you know, if the municipal bond market is, uh, is 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 in trouble, as these new lows suggest, that means that the NYSE uh, list of, uh, of banks could be in trouble. And we don't want anybody to hear this or know this. But, um, you know, this could be maybe the catalyst, maybe the tip of what turns this whole market uh, to the downside. Uh, listen, the, um, the QE2 was such a fraud on America, it isn't funny. Uh, the printing of money and handing it to Wall Street is, is not doing the economy any good at all. Um, you know, I heard uh, on the TV today that there some guys coming on saying, hey, the economy is improving. No, it's not. Wall Street is improving. The economy, yeah. the real economy, is the household. It's the local municipality, the local governments, 
Uh, it's, you know, small businesses, they're getting nothing. Uh, new homes or home values have just dropped 26% uh, since June 2006, which is worse than what we saw during the Great Depression. Five million borrowers are two months or more behind in their mortgages. Um, you know, nobody's talking about the condition of the household, the small business, and the municipality. But this is the guts of our economy, and it's very sick. Well, it's, it's interesting that it's not true that no one is talking about it, but I think those people who are talking about it don't get too much time on the uh, on television. We had Howard Davidowitz on this show in the past. I don't know if you know Howard Davidowitz or not, uh, Robert, but he is uh, a New York uh, retail guy who thinks for himself, and he's very outspoken. Uh, he, Roger, you would know Howard Davidowitz, and, and he's very entertaining. But he's very honest and very truthful, and you know he'll come on and say exactly what you're saying. He says the American consumer is flat on his back, and yet we have all this spin stuff. All this—it just seems to be, you know, it's like um, Klaus Vogt was saying a little while ago when he was on the show. Uh, he said one of the reasons that that they were able to get it right. He gave five, four or five different reasons, but one of the reasons was that uh, they didn't have any. Um, uh, you know, they weren't they weren't uh, compromised in terms of their call because they weren't working for Wall Street. And it's really true. If you're an economist on Wall Street, you basically have to talk your book or you lose your job, right? Absolutely. That's exactly what's going on. It's just a propaganda machine. They make more money when prices go up than when they go down. So they perpetually tell everyone that prices are going up. Yeah. Uh, would like to ask him, Roger, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to ask. But Let's let's look at some of the technicals, uh, Dr. McHugh. I know that you've been bearish. Uh, you've felt that we were going to see this, what you called a cataclysmic nation-changing event, a, 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 a decline in the, the sea wave, decline down, that could take us to new, to new lows. Do you still hold that same view? I do. Uh, whether it starts now or starts in the fall um, or, you know, it, it looked like it could have started last summer, um, whenever it starts, it's coming. Um, we're, we're at a, a top of significance, uh, whether it takes another couple of months to complete or, or they push this thing uh, along a little longer with artificial stimulation. Uh, it's, it's coming. Um, everything I see technically shows uh, that it's coming. Uh, the daily full stochastics, weekly full stochastics, and monthly full stochastics are all at the same topping levels we saw at the top in 2007 and the top in 2000. We have a massive head and shoulders top in the industrials that, um, that has a perfect left shoulder head and right shoulder that it looks like it, the right shoulder's peak is completing right now, approximately the same level that it topped in 2000. Uh, this has a downside target near zero. Um, you know, there are so many different patterns, uh, Elliott Wave labelings. The Elliott Wave uh, pattern looks very close to completion. Uh, that you have to stand up and take notice and say, wow, uh, there's real danger here. On a shorter-term basis, the rally from July has formed an absolutely textbook, beautiful, rising, bearish wedge that looks very close to completion. Uh, the downside target is back at 9,600 for the first wave down of what I think will be cataclysmic wave C down. Uh, so then that could start, again, any moment. Any, it could start today. It could start tomorrow. It could start three months from now, but it, it, it can. And uh, so there's just too much here, too much risk in the market to get real complacent and comfortable and buy the baloney that's going on uh, from the financial, general financial media. Uh, Robert, you, you started a new service, I think. Do you, do you manage money or you're providing uh, a new service for people to manage their own money? What is that called? It's called our Platinum Trading Service. We do not manage the money. What we do is we um, show, share with people uh, what we are doing in, a trading, in our own trading account. Um, and it's a more, more or less an educational uh, forum, and people can do whatever they want with it. Uh, they can con consult with their financial advisors and do exactly what we're doing. They can use it for the benefit of uh, knowing a buy and sell uh, moment uh, for, our, for our own purposes. But we do offer it now, and... Um, it's available at our website uh, for anybody that's interested. And our website, give, our, give that website while we're on that topic. Okay, it's uh, www.technicalindicatorindex.com. Roger, have you a question for, for Dr. McHugh? 
Well, three things I might want to add in agreement. Uh, one of the easiest and biggest charts to see where this thing is heading in, in agreement with Bob, you look at the Wilshire 5000. If you look at the long-range long range chart, many years chart, it's got a massive head and shoulders on it. And typically, as Bob would agree, I think, the, when the shoulders and the head are that far apart, that means when the downside comes, it's going to be a monster. And that's, that's, that's right, one of the Roger. easiest places to go to look at one chart to see the whole deal. And I would agree with uh, you, Jay, on Davidowitz. I'm a fan of his, and I've been with him on retail right along. And uh, what's happening in retail is we said this year one of the big box stores was going to go bankrupt, uh, one or one of the apartment stores. And also uh, we, we're in agreement on the municipal bond thing. We've got a we've got a municipal bond chart in Trader Tracks coming out on Friday, and it looks like an absolute waterfall crash. And if that doesn't tell you what's going on in municipal bonds, nothing will. Yeah, it's just remarkable to me that we have this, uh, you know, this real data in front of us that isn't that doesn't catch the uh, the media. I mean, it just shows it just shows how biased our media is. I would say, um, Robert, you have you had some definite ideas about how we could, uh, you know, how things could have been fixed. Basically, the bailout has has uh, has, has come for Wall Street, and you know, we had Ed Griffin, uh, a replay of my initial. Uh, interview with Ed Griffin. We had Ed Griffin on uh, earlier uh, earlier today, and Ed was going back, and you know the the author of the Creature from Jekyll Island talked about the uh, the creation of the Federal Reserve, who created it, and for what reason. And the reason was, you know, if if anyone wants to say that the Federal Reserve was not has not been successful, on one level you can say they're not successful in terms of what they say their goals are, but if you look underneath the hood and you realize what their likely their goals really are. They've been a huge success because they're bailing out their own their own interests, uh, the the bankers that the banks that own the Federal Reserve. But uh, but Robert, you had you know you've been saying for some time, uh, you know the policymakers are Keynesian. That's what we've all been brought up with. We're not allowed to think about Austrian economics, even though that's predominantly what guests on this show are Austrian economists and Austri people of an Austrian mindset. Uh, if if the policymakers were truly Keynesian, they would be out there doing what you suggested they should do, and that is put the money in the hands of the lower class, the lower income people uh, in, in America. I mean, what you do, uh, you suggest, well, you, had, you tell our listeners what you suggested policymakers should have done to kickstart this economy and have growth from the bottom up rather than make sure that those rich guys that made all those bad loans keep their fancy, uh, fancy places out on the, on the south shore of Long Island. Yeah, when the economy really turned to the death throes a few years ago, um, I suggested that the uh, Treasury rebate anywhere from one to three years of tax taxes uh, that every household paid uh, immediately, and that uh, a minimum payment go out of 50000 a household. And you can argue these numbers, but um, the, uh, the uh, stimulation that the uh, powers that be ha has spent so far somewhere around $3 billion dollars uh, by some counts, and uh, my proposal would have used anywhere from three to five billion, depending on how aggressive the rebate was. And what happens is you get all the money in the hands of the households. They then can uh, I would have them pay off half their debt with it, and the other half they could spend. And that would have been spent uh, with small businesses, which would have created jobs. Small businesses create seventy percent of the jobs in this country, and then small businesses would have bought from the larger corporations to supply them. And then the larger corporations would have uh, gone to Wall Street for their uh, for their uh, lending and their and their investments and capital funds so that they could grow. And then all along the way, there's taxes being collected by every local, state, and uh, federal uh, level. And voila, you suddenly have employment. You have uh, balanced budgets in the government. You have an economy that's growing again from the right sources, from the bottom up. It's not artificial. It's real. And I just uh, thought that that would be a more appropriate way to spend three or four billion dollars than what they did, which was just hand it to Wall Street, boost their balance sheets and their trading profits and their and their bonuses. Well, indeed, and what we're seeing, of course, is rising commodity prices because I think a lot of that money is finding its way into speculative hedge funds. Uh, it's driving uh, food prices up, and we're seeing riots now in countries 
yeah, Tunisia even having uh, its government uh, destabilized as a result, at least that's the excuse, of uh, rising food prices. And when you have food prices rising, you know, people become very desperate. Uh, and, and clearly in America, the average people in America are having a harder time all the time with rising commodity prices, rising energy prices. It seems to me to be a direct influence. And we talked, again, Klaus Vogt, the discussion we had with him earlier today, we talked a little bit about uh, the parallels with the 1930s in many ways that we had, in fact, uh, in the 1930s, the specter of bank of money going into the banking system, but not being lent out to the masses, not being lent out at all, because it was very difficult to find uh, to find uh, credit worthy borrowers. Do you think we're in that same situation today, Robert? Absolutely. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right, Jay. There, there's no real uh, uh, aggressive lending going on. There's real no accommodation. It's the same old game. You got to prove you don't need the money to get it. And there's people that are that they have they've had their credit destroyed by the credit card schemes. They've had their credit destroyed because they lost a job. But there's no real um, uh, you know no real help for them. There's no uh, forbearance with them. Uh, you got those blemishes on your record. You're not going to get money from any bank, and uh, you know you're looked at as a criminal. And so that's why I like the tax rebate approach to get cash in the hands. So there's no bank involved, and then and then once the economy is growing, uh, banks will be glad to uh, to participate in it at some point. Thank you very much, Robert. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you, Roger, also for joining us today. Uh, that's all the time we have for this week. I want to tell uh, our listeners that they want to be sure to come back next week. We're going to have uh, Florian Siegfried. He's a uh, a manager of a very very successful Swiss gold fund. Uh, Chen Lin uh, is going to be with us. In fact, I'm going to be interviewing Chen Lin. He has a remarkable track record, a remarkable history. Peter Granich will be joining us, and Frank Bassa. He is the uh, the president of a very interesting and growing, I think, uh, a company that's growing a world-class gold deposit in Quebec, um, and he'll be with us as well. I want to thank uh, each of you for listening. I want to thank our sponsors again for being with us and keep making this show financially viable. Uh, I want to remind you that you can take advantage of uh, one-time, first-time, one-time only trial subscriptions for Chen Lin, Roger Wiegand, and my own newsletter. Call Claudio Bassi at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. And I want to thank also the staff at Voice America for making this show uh, viable, uh, making it uh, possible, uh, starting with my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Klum, by the, my operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer. Thanks to all of you for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. again for listening to turning hard times into good times with jay taylor please join us again next tuesday at 11 a.m pacific time 2 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel now the thing about time is that time isn't really real it's just your point of